Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this episode number 20 on atrial fibrillation, we have with us Dr. Nazanin Meshkat, Dr. Claret Zema, and Dr. Brian Now. Dr. Meshkat is an emergency physician at the University Health Network and York Central Hospital in Toronto. She's an assistant professor at the University of Toronto and a consultant at the Centre for Innovation and in Complex Care. Dr. Clara Zema is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto. She's an adjunct scientist with the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences and assistant professor at the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Brian Au is an emergency physician at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto and an assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's a well-known speaker in emergency medicine and is the recipient of multiple teaching awards. AFib is the most common dysrhythmia seen in the ED and its incidence is increasing as the population ages. We often see AFib in association with other diseases. It may signify an underlying disease like hyperthyroidism or maybe a result of structural heart disease, for example. The presence of AFib has an independent association with mortality and heart failure, as well as a well-known risk for thromboembolic events due to stasis of blood flow in the left atrium. In fact, about 15% of all strokes in North America are due to AFib. Most patients with AFib can be safely managed in the ED without need for hospital admission. However, there's a huge variability in practice when it comes to exactly how these patients should be managed in the ED. Should the patient be rate-controlled or rhythm-controlled? If they're cardioverted, should we be using meds or electricity or both? Should they be anticoagulated in the ED? What meds should they be sent home on? Which patients should be admitted to hospital? With the help of doctors Ao, Meshkat, and Atsima, will help clarify the best management options for the whole spectrum of patients you're sure to encounter in the emergency room. So, welcome, Dr. Ao. Thanks, Anton, for having me. <laughs> welcome, Dr. Meshka. Thanks, glad to be here. And welcome, Dr. Atsuma. Pleasure to be here. Great, so let's just jump right into our first case here. The first case is a 70-year-old male who's triaged your resuscitation room with a chief complaint of palpitations that started while he was going for his morning walk. He reports no chest pain, no shortness of breath, no nausea or vomiting, and no dizziness. His past medical history includes paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, hypertension, and diabetes. He's on Coumadin, amiodarone, metoprolol, and metformin. On exam, he appears in no distress. His heart rate is 130. His vital signs are otherwise stable, and his cardiovascular exam is essentially normal except for an irregularly irregular rapid pulse. An ECG shows AFib at 130 beats per minute with one millimeter of ST depression in the lateral leads. So Dr. Al, let's start off with what else would you want to know in the history of this patient or any patient with AFib who presents to the emergency department? Well, this particular patient, I would definitely want to know the particular reason for their presentation today. So the six hours of palpitations, you know, how sure were they that they started exactly six hours ago? What were they doing at the time? What we're kind of getting to is whether electrical cardioversion would be an option in this patient or not, which is, you know, obviously predicated upon sort of knowing exactly when their symptoms started. You mentioned there's no chest pain or shortness of breath, but you really want to push them because there seem to be some signs of ischemia on the ECG as to whether or not there are any ischemic type symptoms there at all, uh, whether that would be a, a precipitant of this episode of atrial fibrillation, or whether the atrial fibrillation is obviously you know, causing a bit of a stress test, causing a bit of myocardial ischemia. Uh, that may certainly change your disposition of the patient and also your decisions as to sort of how aggressively you want to sort of rate control them. 
Other general past medical history, uh, any other cardiac diseases, whether they're followed by a cardiologist, whether they had an echocardiogram to sort of see whether there's any sort of structural heart disease or not, valvular heart disease. I would like to know, they are on warfarin, how well controlled they are in terms of their INR, whether their INR is therapeutic most of the time. But again, that again may influence your decision to cardiovert or not. I a lot of times will ask them what has worked in their management in the ED before, like what's been successful in them in terms of like rate control, cardioversion, and what's been discussed with their cardiologist in, in the sense of rate versus rhythm strategy, which can certainly help me in terms of what I want to be doing in the ED. Okay, great. This brings up a lot of topics, the uh, possibility of ischemia, uh, rate control versus rhythm control. We're going to talk about all this stuff. So let's just go on with the case. The onset of these palpitations were six hours prior to your assessment. He has no known thyroid disease and he does not drink alcohol. According to the hospital records, his last episode was four weeks prior, which lasted for about two days, during which time he was started on metoprolol for rate control by his cardiologist. He's had a recent transthoracic cardiac echo that showed an enlarged left atrium and some mitral regurgitation. His last INR was one week prior and was therapeutic at 2.3. So Dr. Atsimo, what are some of the causes of AFib that you think about initially when assessing the patient with AFib in the ED, and why is it important to identify an underlying cause in the ED? Well, as Dr. Al has already alluded to, ACS is obviously very important to rule out, and that would probably be the top of my list, certainly in this patient and in any patient. Pulmonary embolus is obviously a significant threat to life, so that's something you also want to rule out. And myocarditis, I think a lot of emergency physicians forget about, but do always remember to have myocarditis on your differential and someone with chest pain, and certainly if they have atrial fibrillation, it is a cause. Holiday heart, people drinking too much. Yeah, I think the way we typically think about holiday heart is you just, you know, you're not usually... Ask the guy from St. Mike's. So it goes on a bit of a bender, it goes on a you know a vacation, you know, drinks more than they usually would, and they come back to work on the Monday morning, and it is that relative hypersympathetic state that precipitates the atrial fibrillation. And I want to rule out hyperthyroidism. The updated guidelines do recommend a TSH on patients. I would only do it on a patient with a first-time AFib, and this patient's been in AFib before. But for a first time, you want to rule it out because you can treat the source rather than putting the patient on rate control or rhythm control for an extended period of time. And it's not just hyperthyroidism, it's subclinical hyperthyroidism, which is when your TSH is low, but your free T4 is normal. And then lastly, there's a group of patients who are called lone AFibbers. By definition, we call these patients less than the age of 60 with no cardiac disease, and that includes hypertension. So you can't have high blood pressure and be a lone AFibber. But if you don't have hypertension or any other cardiac disease and you're less than the age of 60, we see these patients quite a bit in the emergency room. My guess, looking at some of our early data, that we are, we are looking at about 1,600 AFib patients in Ontario, it's between 30 and 40% are lone AFibbers. And those patients have a pretty different prognosis in how you'll treat them. So just to recap there, for the history of the patient who presents the emergency department with AFib, you want to know exactly what the time of onset is, because if it's more than 48 hours, you probably won't cardiovert them. And if it's less than 48 hours, you do have the option to cardiovert. You want to know their previous episodes and how they've been treated in the past. You want to know if they have any associated cardiac disease, especially ischemic disease. You need to know their current antiarrhythmic medications, if they're on anticoagulation medications, and what their current INR level is. You want to know what the rhythm on the most recent ECG is, and you want to know the risk of stroke as per the CHADS-2 score, which we'll talk about a little bit later. As well, you want to know if they drink alcohol or if they've recently had a binge of alcohol, and you want to know if they have underlying thyroid disease. 
While about one-third of afibers are lone afibers with no demonstrable cause, if you like mnemonics, you can remember the differential of atrial fibrillation by the mnemonic PIRATES. P is for pulmonary embolism, I is for ischemia, R is for respiratory disease, A is for atrial enlargement or myxoma, T is for hyperthyroidism, E is for ethanol, and S is for sepsis. The other thing to know is that sleep apnea is a common and often overlooked cause of AFib and is present in up to 50% of patients with AFib. And as Dr. Atsuma pointed out, often if you treat the underlying cause of AFib, then the AFib will resolve. So if you have a patient in holiday heart, it might be enough just to give them a bit of Ativan to get them out of alcohol withdrawal, and that might get rid of their atrial fibrillation. Or if a patient is hyperthyroid, like Dr. Atsuma pointed out, if you treat the hyperthyroidism, then their atrial fibrillation will often resolve. Dr. Atman is going to continue this theme of treating the underlying cause when it comes to atrial fibrillation and sleep apnea. The new guidelines do point out that if you treat the sleep apnea, the AFib may resolve because it's from the size of the right atrium and the increased pulmonary pressure is due to sleep apnea. So absolutely, that's something else to consider. Okay. Or for the family doctor to consider, perhaps. You know, they need to lose weight, basically. They need to lose weight and CPAP and all those things to be instituted in order to get the, the right atrium down to size again. They might be unaware and their family doctors might be unaware that there is a relationship between Absolutely. sleep apnea and AFib. So at least to tell them that there might be and that if they can treat their, their sleep apnea, then maybe their AFib will go away. And maybe then they'll actually use their CPAP machine, which <laughs> most patients with sleep apnea who get prescribed the CPAP end up not using it. it. Yeah. Did we mention hypertension as a cause for AFib? Because it's probably one of the most common causes Right, and that's the same physiology that yes. you were describing before. Okay. About... It's increased pressures, and then you get dilation and fibrosis, basically, of your heart muscle, and then your heart muscle distends, and then you go into a fit. Dr. Meshkat, this patient presented with palpitations. Could you just go through for us what are some of the other common presentations of AFib? So I find that younger patients typically do present with palpitations and they're quite aware of their palpitations, but they may also experience some chest discomfort. And when you do some further questioning about it, the chest discomfort is typically non-anginal. It's just because of the rapid heart rate. The elderly tend to be a little bit less aware of their palpitations and they can present with more vague symptoms. So they'll present with uh, fatigue, lightheadedness, shortness of breath, and then, of course, there's always the exception to the rule, right? So you have the younger patients that might not experience their palpitations as well and elderly that are very, very aware of it. These are the most common presentations, right? So the fatigue, the palpitations, the chest discomfort. Less common is that a patient that will present with their first episode of TIA or stroke and they happen to be in AFib. Then you have the CHFers well, that they could also present with AFib and the ischemic chest pain. Those are less common presentations. We do see them and we have to be aware of them. When someone presents with AFib and syncope, what are your thoughts in terms of what's causing the syncope? Is it just the AFib usually, or is there something else going on, or how do you approach that kind of patient? I would say that it would be distinctly uncommon for atrial fibrillation in and of itself to cause syncope. 
I think that if someone syncopizes and you do an ECG and there's atrial fibrillation on the ECG, I think that atrial fibrillation is probably just an innocent bystander and it probably isn't the sole cause. You should probably look for another cause of syncope. The usual things that we would think about like hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, Brugada syndrome, vasovagal syncope, PE, those types of things. But if we see people with atrial fibrillation at rates of 140, 150, 160 all the time, they rarely present with syncope and they're usually very hemodynamically stable. They tolerate it pretty well. So I would be hard-pressed to sort of attribute syncope to be based on atrial fibrillation alone. Right, yeah. I guess the exception to that would be if they're Wolf Parkinson White and atrial fibrillation. Yeah, that's a different situation. The ECG will certainly be a little bit different than sort of your garden variety atrial fibrillation, but that should be pretty easy to diagnose just based on the the 12 lead. The other person I would worry about would be someone with a a PE who's on a beta blocker or some kind of aiming nodal blockade, because when you're having a PE, you need to compensate heart rate times stroke volume equals cardiac output. And if you can't alter your heart rate to compensate, then you may faint. So anyone who's fainting and on a beta blocker with any risk factors for PE, and certainly if they're in AFib, I worry about PE, if, if, particularly if it's the first time, that would be something to consider. Right, and that would be a tough PE to pick up because we're usually looking for tachycardia. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, that'd be a tough one. I mean, you definitely want to do a good HMP. You want to look for the chest pain, you know, the shortness of breath, something that might trick you in that direction. When it comes to your differential diagnosis of patients who are in AFib but have a slow ventricular rate, say of 45, what are some of the things that you think about? Well, the first thing that pops to mind is digoxin toxicity, and that obviously needs to be worked up if that's a possibility. Another option would be extreme AV nodal blockade, so they're on deltaiazem at too high a dose, or they're on a beta blocker at too high a dose. And if they're not on any AV nodal blockers, DIG, calcium channel blockers, beta blockers, and they're in AFib going that slow, I would worry about sick sinus syndrome because obviously if their atria are going that fast and their ventricles are going that slow, there's something wrong with their conduction pathway in their AV node. And that would be someone I would definitely consider referring to a cardiologist. And the last cause would be severe hyperkalemia. Hyperkalemia causing bradycardia is, is something that's under-recognized. You always hear in the textbooks about the peak T waves, sine wave, all that kind of stuff like that, but not infrequently. I would say that when a patient comes in with bradycardia, thinking about patient them, put it on the transcutaneous pads, we'll send off the K, and then later on the K comes back at 7 or 8. Uh, so I think hyperkalemia is under-recognized as a cause of bradycardia. In this case, you're handed the ECG by the nurse, and it looks like typical rapid AFib. Irregularly, irregular ventricular rate between 110 and 160 beats per minute. No discernible P waves. Small, rapid, irregular fibrillation waves at 350 to 600 beats per minute, and a normal QRS morphology. There's one millimeter of ST depression in the lateral leads. Let's talk a little bit about ECGs. What first are the three main diagnostic considerations with irregularly irregular tachycardias, and how can we differentiate them on ECG? Well, fortunately, these haven't changed over time, which is always nice. So AFib, obviously, MAT is the other one, and a flutter with variable AV conduction causes an irregularly irregular heart rate. So MAT, you know, really you just look for inpatients with COPD. I don't think I've ever seen anyone in MAT who didn't have a significant respiratory disease. Mm-hmm. Multifocal atrial tachycardia. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and in those patients, they usually have three or more different P wave morphologies. So when you're looking at the ECG, the P waves aren't the same shape. The PR intervals vary as well as the PP and the R intervals are also variable. 
The rate's usually between 100 and 150, and they respond fairly poorly to antiarrhythmic drugs. You're not trying to focus on reversing MAT, you're trying to focus on treating the underlying cause here, which would be the respiratory disease. A flutter with variable AV conduction, I've only seen a few times. A flutter in the emergency room is only about 5% of AFib patients if you count that as part of atrial fibrillation. And then with variable conduction is less than a third. So it's pretty rare to see a flutter with variable AV conduction, but it is something to consider. Now, you mentioned that this patient had a bit of ST depression, and in the study that we're doing right now on 3,500 AFib patients, we found that a lot of patients have a little bit of ST depression, presumably due to rate-related ischemia. Now, clinically, when I'm in the emergency department, I don't get excited about it at all because they're going quite fast, and I'm not surprised they have a touch of ST depression. But it is something that we're looking into in terms of a possible predictor of poor outcomes. So we don't know yet. So we don't know yet. We don't yet. Okay. With that, we've talked about how ischemia is definitely something we want to rule out. And it's definitely one of the causes of AFib. But on the other hand, if they have a little bit of ST depression and it's transient, well, you don't really need to worry about it. And we see a lot of it. So can you give us some sort of clinical pearls on how to navigate that situation? I think for me, it's going to be in the history. If they have a history of anginal type of chest pain, and that's really one of their chief complaints, then I would probably worry more about acute coronary syndrome. But, you know, as you said, it's, it's not uncommon at all for someone who's tachycardic or tacking along to have a little bit of sort of vague chest discomfort in there, a little bit of, of ischemic change on the cardiogram, particularly if they're a little bit older. And I would not necessarily pursue that as an ACS patient, as opposed to someone who really their chief complaint was an ischemic type of chest discomfort. And it's actually not surprising that the older patients would have that because they have coronary artery disease to begin with, so they can't get quite as much flow to their heart. And we know that atrial fibrillation does, to a small degree, decrease your coronary blood flow because of the dyssynchrony between your atrium and your ventricles, which you know many of us who don't have coronary artery disease can compensate for that with vasodilation to our coronaries. Some with coronary artery disease cannot compensate, so it's not surprising to get chest pain when they're going a bit faster. For me, as, as long as the ST depression resolves when you slow them down or convert them, it's really the final ECG that I care about much more than the, the initial ECG when they come in. I agree. I, I think it's if it pers- persists after cardioversion or rate control, then I would worry about it a little bit more, especially, as Dr. Al said, if there's clinical features that suggest it. The other thing is, apart from cor- underlying coronary artery disease, there's also repolarization changes, right, with atrial fibrillation. So that's why in a lot of young patients that do not have coronary artery disease, you, you might see, you know, that ST segment depression of like 0.5 and really the significance of it. Well, I guess we have to wait until Dr. Atzeman's study tells us what that significance is. So we keep waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. We keep on waiting, waiting, waiting on the world to change. So one of the important things is knowing which patients are at risk for stroke who present with AFib. Dr. Meshkat, can you review for us the CHADS-2 score, which we've talked about before in our episode with Walter Himmel and Dan Selchin on TIA and stroke? but it's always good to review. Could you just tell us what the CHADS-2 score is and why it's helpful? And we can talk also about specifically what this patient, in this case, what their CHADS-2 score is. 
Okay, so there's something in the order of about 12 different stroke risk stratification models for AFib patients. And CHATS2 has been very successful because they've come up with a pretty simple and useful, easy-to-use risk stratification model. And it's the, well, the, the one that is most uh, used now. It's a six-point score system for assessing stroke risk in patients with non-valvular atrial fibrillation. So you get one point for the letter C, which stands for CHF, H for hypertension, A for age greater than 75, D for diabetes, and then two points for S that stands for stroke and or TIA. The current Canadian and European guidelines recommend anticoagulation, and that could be either warfarin or dipigitrin, and we can talk about that a little bit later, for anyone with a score of one and above. And some patients with a score of one could be put on aspirin if that's their choice. So our patient has a score of two based on their hypertension and diabetes, and he is appropriately on warfarin. So if a patient only has diabetes, for example, even if they're young, they should probably be at minimum on aspirin, but probably on warfarin, according to the Canadian and European guidelines. Yeah, certainly I think there's been a move towards that recently. And even if you look at the CHAT score, if you have a score of 1, your risk of a stroke is about 2%. The pendulum has swung several times in the past 30 years when it comes to rate control versus rhythm control for patients who are in AFib for less than 48 hours. We have the choice of cardioverting the patient giving antiarrhythmic meds or shocking the patient or giving them meds that simply slow them down without cardioverting them to sinus rhythm. So what is best, rate control or rhythm control? Well, first to even be considering this question, it obviously has to be less than 48 hours. You would never consider it in someone who has been in atrial fibrillation for more than 48 hours unless you're absolutely sure they had been properly anticoagulated for more than three to four weeks, which is what the cardiologists do before they cardiovert a patient. So obviously less than 48 hours. Then the features that I consider are the patient's age, how symptomatic they are, and the likelihood of reoccurrence. So age, a younger age, you're more likely to try and cardiovert this patient. And the updated guidelines do actually say that, even though there isn't that much evidence for it, because we haven't studied a younger population, that you should try to cardiovert younger patients. It actually specifically states that in the 2011 guidelines. So if the patient's older, I may be less likely to consider it, but certainly for younger patients, I'm going to be thinking about it. And the reason for that is because the younger patients tend to be more symptomatic? Exactly, so that's the second point. So they feel the symptoms more, they can feel their heart pounding, and it's more uncomfortable for them. So if an older patient is, is highly symptomatic, then for them I might consider it as well. Um, and then lastly, the likelihood of reoccurrence. So if that patient, like I believe this patient was here a month ago in AFib, and they're going into AFib you know, every month, maybe we should stop hitting them with electricity, which isn't that good for your heart over and over, and we should go another route, maybe ablation or another option. But certainly if they're in the eMERGE over and over, I'm not going to try and cardiovert them back again because they're going to be back next month to see me. So just to recap there, the three considerations when deciding whether to rate control or rhythm control a patient with AFib in the emergency department is their age, how symptomatic they are, and the likelihood of recurrence. Dr. Atsuma is now going to talk about the AFFIRM trial with regards to rate versus rhythm control and how we should apply those results to the ED. So those are my considerations, and these are all based on some huge studies, the biggest of which was the AFFIRM trial, which is over 4,000 patients that were all 
relatively old. Their mean age was 69 and they all had some kind of risk factor for stroke like CHF or hypertension. So they're not really looking at the kind of patients we see in the ED, although we do see those patients in the ED. Our studies show that there are a lot of older patients, but we also see those lone afibers, which would be very different uh, in how we treat them. The AFFIRM trial, which shows that there's no benefit to putting someone back into sinus rhythm as opposed to just keeping them rate controlled, is in older patients. So in the younger patient, you might think of it differently than AFFIRM did or all the other studies like HOT, CAFE, Ray, STAFF. They're all much smaller studies, several hundred, but they all show the same thing, that there's no major benefit to being back in sinus. And that also includes CHF patients. We used to think that if you were prone to CHF, we should be trying to get the atrial fibrillation back into sinus um, because it's just going to make everything worse. And we know that patients with CHF and atrial fibrillation have a much worse prognosis than patients who have just one or the other. But there was a recent study that's uh, noted in the focused updates, the atrial fibrillation and CHF study, which showed that there was no benefit even in patients with CHF to putting them back into sinus. But again, these are older patients. There's not been a study in the emergency department population. So for the younger patients, I will be trying. May I say a little aside about the AFFIRM trial? It is true that they included patients that were greater than 65, but the one tidbit about it is that they actually excluded about 3,500 patients that the investigators and the patients felt that they could not tolerate being in atrial fibrillation, so they were too symptomatic. And so as a result, in essence, they excluded all those patients that would have preferred being on rhythm control than rate control. And uh, so the AFFIRM trial did not show that there was any improvement in quality of life, uh, ultimately in their study population, because they excluded those patients that were very symptomatic. Whereas some of the other trials actually have shown that with rhythm control, you do have a better quality of life. It might not change the outcomes in terms of mortality or cardiovascular events, but in terms of quality of life, they do, they do better. And I think the most important message is whatever you do, you treat the stroke risk based on their stroke risk. So you anticoagulate them as per CHADS2 or whatever uh, protocol you like to use, whether or not they are back in sinus rhythm when they leave the ED or they are still in atrial fibrillation. That's key and it's noted in the guidelines many times. And that's based on studies either with a Holter monitor or with patients with ICDs who show that they can't always tell when they're in atrial fibrillation. So they may go home in sinus and think they've been in sinus the whole time, but actually they're going back and forth and we don't know whether or not it's longer than 48 hours. So they're still at risk of having a stroke. Make sure you treat them appropriately for their stroke risk. And here's Dr. Meshkat's take on whether we should be anticoagulating patients who we've just converted to normal sinus rhythm in the emergency department. I typically, if they have a CHADS of zero, I don't put them on aspirin. But if they have a CHADS of one and above, I will certainly have a discussion with them about the need for anticoagulation. I find a lot of times patients will have a lot of questions and a little bit are a little bit hesitant to start anticoagulation right then and there. So I will, uh, if they do not want me to start them and prescribe them on warfarin or now DABI is the other alternative, then I would certainly strongly urge that they go and speak to their uh, family physician and cardiologist and have further discussions about it. Theoretically, it makes sense that patients often, especially elderly patients, don't know that they're in AFib. And we do know that patients, whether they're in paroxysmal AFib or persistent AFib or permanent AFib, they all have the same stroke risk. Exactly. I just think we need to make sure that we're talking about the same groups of patients. I mean, I think when you have a, a younger person with recent onset atrial fibrillation, 
you don't know for sure that they don't have structural heart disease because you know you know you don't get an echo in the emergency department. That person is at a much lower risk of stroke than say an elderly person with known paroxysmal atrial fibrillation who comes in with you know another one of their episodes. Oh, you know, doc, my palpitation started six hours ago. Yeah, absolutely. That person, I think you know you need to have that anticoagulation discussion with them and make sure that they're appropriately anticoagulated. According to the 2010 Canadian guidelines, there's a special section in there on uh, recent onset atrial fibrillation in the emergency departments, that in general, those patients don't need uh, to leave the ED on anticoagulation if their CHAD score is zero. Again, you know, indicating that there's no comorbidities and they're young. The recent onset atrial fibrillation presumed, you know, normal structural heart, I think is a, is a different patient population that we're much more likely to electrically cardiovert in the emergency department. And I don't think that anticoagulation is, is, is as necessary in those people, unless they have, you know, significant risk factors. Follow-up is, of course, very important for them as well. So the bottom line is that every patient who has a CHAD score of one or more, who you convert to normal sinus rhythm in the emergency department, still has a significant risk for stroke from their atrial fibrillation, even though they're in normal sinus rhythm when you speak to them. Those patients all should have at least a conversation about the need for anticoagulation. For those young patients with a CHAD score of zero with presumably normal structural hearts and no valvular disease, if you've converted them in the emergency department to normal sinus rhythm, our experts agree that you probably do not need anticoagulation for them. Everyone else? you should consider anticoagulation. In this next section, we're going to talk about rate control for atrial fibrillation. Now, when it comes to what rate to aim for, the goal of rate control in the emergency department, there is a little bit of controversy. The American guidelines say we should be aiming for a rate of less than 110, and the Canadian guidelines saying we should be aiming for a rate of less than 100. In the old days, they recommended a rate of less than 80, but recent trials have shown that we don't need such strict rate control. However, if a patient has a known history of coronary artery disease, for example, you would want to get the rate down below 80. The other exception might be the patient who's coming in with a rate of, say, 100 or 110, who's very symptomatic. Those patients, you don't necessarily need to rate control with IV medications, since we know it's not dangerous to have their rate about 100. In that situation, you probably want to consider giving a small dose of a PO rate-controlling medication. Besides these two exceptions, the goal for rate control in atrial fibrillation in the emergency department is 100 or 110. Let's say you decide to rate control this patient. What are your drug choices for rate control, and what are some of the factors to consider when deciding which drug to use? For me, it's coming down to either beta blockers or diltiazem, because that's what I'm comfortable with. And ultimately, you should be using drugs that you're comfortable with, where you know what the possible side effects are, and you are comfortable in managing them. So in general, I find that emergency physicians prefer diltiazem for rate control and cardiologists prefer beta blockers. This is what I see over and over and what I have to account for when I'm looking at observational data and trying to see which is better for patients, which keeps them rate controlled more effectively. There are some small studies showing that beta blockers hold the rate slightly better. 70% achieved a heart rate less than 110 compared to 54% using calcium channel blockers. Personally, I find it's the opposite. I find diltiazem is actually more effective, 
but I do choose beta blockers in anyone with cardiac disease. So if they have diabetes, coronary artery disease, history of heart attack, or even hypertension, I will usually choose a beta blocker first. I start with 5 of IV metoprolol and then move up to 15, and then I give them either 25 or 50 PO metoprolol. And then I look to see how it's working. So the one exception would be to using beta blockers. Of course, you wouldn't want to use an asthmatic patient or in someone in fluorid CHF. Obviously, that's a contraindication. And of course, beta blockers would be the better choice in a patient with hyperthyroidism-induced atrial fibrillation. Okay. And what about digoxin? I know in the emergency room that I work in, digoxin is very rarely used for rate control for AFib. What does the literature say and what are some of the other practices around the country when it comes to using digoxin for atrial fibrillation? So the guidelines are very clear that digoxin is not effective for rate control. It takes a long time. It works via vagal inhibition. And vagal inhibition is fine when you're sitting still, but as soon as you get anxious or you are exercising, you're going to go much higher. And the idea between trying to keep the rate behind trying to keep rate control is that you want to reduce tachycardia-induced cardiomyopathy. So if you let someone go at a high rate for a long time, they're going to get a cardiomyopathy from it. And digoxin does not prevent the heart rate from going high when they're exercising, when they're anxious. So it's definitely second line. It clearly states that in the guidelines. And yet in the study that we're doing right now, we're finding that actually digoxin is used quite often in the emergency department to get rate control. It takes at least an hour, probably longer, for it to have any effect. And as I say, it only works when they're resting. As soon as they're exercising or doing something else, it is not effective at rate control. So it is definitely not something I would look toward. Maybe in someone who's already on a beta blocker and they have CHF and the CHF isn't active, I might add it because digoxin is known to be effective in that patient group, but that's a very small select patient population. So we've talked about beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, and digoxin when it comes to rate control. Uh, We know that calcium channel blockers and beta blockers are contraindicated in patients with CHF who are in AFib to rate control them. Digoxin is an option, but like we just said, it takes a long time and it's not very good at rate control. That brings up whether we should be using amiodarone to rate control our patients who are in AFib with CHF. What's your take on using amiodarone for rate control? Sure. I think amiodarone is an option in that patient, maybe with a bit of a tenuous blood pressure who's in congestive heart failure. Amio is thought to have less of a negative inotropic effect than, say, a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker. So that can really be used in that situation. But the other thing is, if somebody actually comes in with CHF, I would say that treating the underlying cause would better suit the patient than adding more drugs to their cocktail because a lot of times when you actually treat the CHF, so yeah, you deal with the pulmonary edema, then the atrial fibrillation, the actual rate can correct itself without having to add another agent to their cocktail. Okay. I think we've all been in a situation where we're trying to rate control a patient and let's say we choose cardizem, a calcium channel blocker, to rate control them. And we use 20 milligrams of cardizem, and their blood pressure goes a bit low, and it's not really working, so maybe we'll try a bit more cardizem. What cautionary pearls can you tell us about then trying another AV nodal blocker? So I tend to maximize the first agent that I'm using. 
So I'll maximize on the dose. Once that I've maximized on the dose of whatever agent I started off with first, if it doesn't work, I tend to go back and revisit and look at the picture again. Because I find it rare that in somebody with straightforward atrial fibrillation that beta blockers or, or calcium channel blockers are not going to work to some degree. So I'll go back and revisit the picture and see if there's something that I'm missing, if there's a secondary cause, is there like a pneumonia, is there a septic picture, is the patient dehydrated, is there any other reason why they're in rapid AFib? Because in that situation, I think definitely you want to target the underlying cause and, and the patient would be better served rather than adding yet another agent to their cocktail. For me personally, my practice then is to call a cardiologist. I do not like mixing my AV node blockers. I've seen other physicians do it rarely and both times I saw it done there were negative outcomes because the combination of the two AV node blockers they potentiate each other and there's a significant drop in blood pressure from that so that's for me one of the indications to call uh, some a consultant for possible admission is a failure of rate control. Yeah I agree with you that it's very unusual for a medicine like diltiazem to not rate control atrial fibrillation. I think a more common situation where you're going to fail you know, to rate control someone is atrial flutter. Atrial flutter sometimes is very, very difficult to, mm-hmm. to rate control and I often you know, just have to end up admitting those people. You know, I remember when we used to teach ACLS, we used to say, yeah, never, never, you know, give IV beta blocker followed by an IV calcium channel blocker. You know, in general, don't add on, you know, one AV node block an agent on top of another because, again, you can precipitate high-grade AV blocks and really drop that BP. Many patients with AFib will convert spontaneously without us doing anything. Sometimes the adage, don't just do something, stand there, can be applied to AFib. What is the rate of spontaneous conversion to normal sinus rhythm, and what are some of the factors that make spontaneous conversion more or less likely? So the value is somewhere in the range of 40 to 70% within 24 hours, and it really depends on a specific patient population that you're looking at and the comorbidities or the time of onset uh, to AFib, the time of onset of the AFib. So the one prospective study that I'm aware of that has looked at predictors of spontaneous conversion, the only predictor that they were able to find was the duration of the episode of atrial fibrillation. That was the only significant predictor. Uh, So to illustrate, uh, patients that had AFib less than 24 hours, 66% of them uh, converted on their own, and that rate dropped to 17% once that you pass the 24-hour mark. I I tend to cardiovert patients when they come to the emergency department because they typically come there because of their symptoms, are bothersome to them, and they're feeling quite anxious. And it's also for patient convenience. They've often been waiting in the emergency department for a while and they don't want to wait a lot longer. However, once that I'm going to send them home and I'm going to give them discharge instructions, a lot of times I will advise them that the next time they get an episode of atrial fibrillation, that they can wait it out for about six to eight hours to see if they spontaneously converge unless they have any other worrisome symptoms like ischemic sounding chest pain or shortness of breath, lightheadedness, etc. Okay. Yeah, I guess in the emergency department, it's worth knowing this high spontaneous conversion rate in the patient who's really, really reluctant to be cardioverted or to get any drugs and 
you know, it's just a battle to try and convince them to get anything done. I guess one option is just to observe them and hope that they spontaneously convert. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I've had some of my colleagues, again, that exact same patient, patient who's, you know, quite anxious about the electrical cardioversion procedure, definite time of onset less than, you know, 24 hours, and just kind of bring them back the next day, rate control them, you know, give them, you know, maybe a, a small dose of the ties and PO, uh, so they feel more comfortable, and then bring them back the following day uh, to see if the AFib is spontaneously converted, and it often does. If it hasn't, though, you can sort of revisit that discussion about electrical cardioversion at that time. Let's say you've decided to chemically cardioversion this patient for whatever reason. Even when we know that chemical cardioversion generally doesn't work as well as electrical cardioversion and does carry a higher risk of complications like arrhythmias and hypotension, as well as prolonging the length of stay in the ED, what is your medication of choice in general for chemical cardioversion, and what would it be for this older gentleman with hypertension and diabetes? We know that there's procainamide, there's amiodarone, there's dronaterone, there's ibutilide, there's propafenone, there's flecainide, there's all these different medications. What can you tell our listeners about deciding between these different drugs for chemical cardioversion? Well, I can tell them that the guidelines very clearly recommend ibutilide, propafenone, and flecainide as a class one recommendation for converting atrial fibrillation. So that's the top choice according to the guidelines, which are based on studies in the cardiologist's office, not emergency medicine studies. So the next line would be amiodarone and procainamide, which is really quite surprising considering that I think most of us use only procainamide, mm -hmm. and that's certainly what they use in Ottawa, where Ian Steele has been promulgating his aggressive Ottawa protocol. My feeling is you use what you're comfortable with. So you both know all the possible side effects that could happen and you are comfortable with managing all of those uh, potential side effects. So for me, I know procainamide well, I know what I'm looking for, and that is what I would reach for. There isn't much evidence in the cardiology literature for it, but certainly Ian Steele has published a few studies now. One of them had 660 patients in it uh, using procainamide and there were no negative outcomes and specifically no strokes within the first couple of weeks, which is after cardioversion when you're at the highest risk of developing a stroke. If you know the other drugs, uh, flecainide is 2 milligrams per kilo IV over 10 minutes, and it is the most effective antiarrhythmic on AFib that's new within the first 48 hours. And then if you have structural heart disease, amiodarone uh, has been recommended. It does take a bit longer. You have to be prepared for bradycardia and hypotension. But if you have structural heart disease, it's another option to try and convert the patient chemically. I remember one old school physician back when I was a resident in Hamilton used to use propafenone, PO. And I think that the way that we'll see propafenone in the ED is a lot of arrhythmia cardiologists have their patients follow the pill in the pocket approach where they have a pill of propafenone in their pocket along with a, uh, an AB nodal blocker like a beta blocker to take at the same time to see if that works at the moment that they feel the onset of the atrial fibrillation just to avoid you know having to come to the emergency department. If you are going to use propafenone, one pearl is you have to have to use an AB nodal blocking agent at the same time because propafenone used alone can actually cause accelerated conduction of atrial fibrillation leading to ventricular dysrhythmias. And abutilide can cause QT prolongation. So just make sure you know all the potential side effects before you reach for any drug. So here's a quick overview of the antiarrhythmics you can use for conversion of atrial fib in less than 48 hours. First, you can divide it into patients that have no structural heart disease or coronary disease and patients who have structural heart disease. So for patients with no structural heart disease or coronary artery disease, there's procainamide, 
which we'll talk about in a few minutes in more detail with the Ottawa Aggressive Protocol. Next, there's flecainide, which is 2 mg per kilogram IV over 10 minutes. It's the most effective antiarrhythmic drug for this purpose. It converts about 80% within 6 hours. Next is propafenone. In Europe, this is used a lot IV, 2 mg per kilogram over 10 minutes, just like flecainide. And a lot of cardiologists in North America, as Dr. Au was describing, use the pill-in-the-pocket technique with propafenone combined with a beta blocker. So those are your choices for patients with no structural heart disease. That's flecainide, propafenone, or procainamide. For patients that do have structural heart disease, coronary artery disease, the choices are amiodarone or ibutilide. Amiodarone is not very effective, and conversion occurs several hours later than flecainide, propafenone, ibutilide. Its big advantage is that it's safe in patients with structural heart disease, and it's very good at controlling ventricular rate. Ibutilide is 1 mg over 10 minutes, repeated once after 20 minutes. It can be used in patients with structural heart disease, but not overt failure. Beware with ibutilide of prolonged QT, as Dr. Atsimo was pointing out, because about 2% of patients can go into torsade. When using ibutilide, in order to prevent this torsade, make sure you check the ECG QTC first, and some experts recommend pretreatment with IV magnesium. Next, Dr. Atsuma is going to talk about procainamide, and then we'll go on to some of the newer medications for conversion of AFib. And with procainamide, it's 18 to 20 milligrams per kilo, running at a rate of between 20 and 30 per minute. Most of us used to use a gram, but if you're stopping at a gram, you're probably not getting everyone that you could, so you really should do it by weight. And you stop when either the QRS duration doubles, you get hypotension, or they convert. That's uh, the Ottawa Aggressive yes. Protocol. Yes. Now, I, I find it very interesting that based on a handful of studies from one researcher that the entire emergency medicine community uses pretty much strictly one drug when in the guidelines it's a 2B and there's another four drugs that are 1A recommendations. I guess what we really need is some emergency department studies with all these other medications that appear to be better than procainamide. Dr. Meshkat's now going to talk about amiodarone for rhythm control in AFib. Remember that amiodarone is the only drug that is indicated in conversion of AFib for patients who are in pulmonary edema. The Canadian guidelines, they don't include amiodarone as a choice for ED cardioversion. I think it's in the American guidelines that amiodarone is offered as an option. Can you just tell us a little bit more about amiodarone for rhythm control? It's not as good as procainamide, it's not as good as any of the other medications we were, we were talking about. In the patient who is in pulmonary edema with rapid AFib and you want to chemically cardiovert, is amiodarone your only option? Is there another better option? There's amio or there's DIG according to the guidelines, and both of them will take at least an hour. I've read that amio has a success rate of around 5%, which I don't think is true. I used it back when it was really popular, and it seemed to be fairly successful, although it took about an hour, so you're leaving the patient tacking along maybe with some chest pressure and CHF, although you're treating the CHF at the same time, and then DIG is the other option, or you could just electrically cardiovert them, which is my preference for everyone. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, I, I think that if they are in CHF and you are you want to go the route of cardioversion, that electrical cardioversion would be my, my first choice as you're treating the underlying CHF.
Dr. Atsuma, we've talked about procainamide, we've talked about amiodarone, ibutilide, propafrenone, and flecainide. There's this newer medication, which I believe is called Fernacolent. What can you tell us about this new medication, Fernacolent, for the use in AFib? I understand it's used in, in Europe quite a bit. Yes, it is. They were running a huge safety trial, international trial, Europe, North America, here in Canada as well. And they ran into some safety issues. They had some bad outcomes. So that huge study has been stopped as far as I'm aware. So that drug is off my radar for the moment. Dronadarone is the drug that I'm sort of becoming more aware of now because I see patients coming in on it. The Athena trial showed that it was better than placebo at preventing hospitalizations, cardiovascular deaths than placebo. Though it, whether or not it kept patients in sinus wasn't totally clear. And the other thing is you'd never use it in CHF. Patients with CHF, it kills them. The uh, Andromeda trial showed that these are all patients with atrial fibrillation and CHF, and when they took dronadarone, they were at double the risk of dying. So absolutely not anyone with CHF. And I believe there's a new study coming out, PALACE, which is going to give us some more information on this drug. So at this time, I'm just watching it. I'm not prescribing it, but it is out there, and you may see patients who come in on that drug. So just a little update on dronadarone. Dr. Atsuma had mentioned the PALACE trial just now. It stands for Permanent Atrial Fibrillation Outcome Study Using Dronadarone on Top of Standard Therapy. And this just came out in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it showed that dronadarone increases mortality, stroke, and CHF. Now, these patients were in permanent AFib, which historically we haven't put patients in permanent AFib on antiarrhythmics instead of rate control. And these patients were also older and had a higher incidence of CHF. And as Dr. Atsuma pointed out, we already knew that patients with CHF and AFib don't do well on dronadarone. So while generally emergency doctors don't put patients on antiarrhythmic medications in the long run, we should know about this drug And if they do come in on this medication, we should be aware that recent trials in patients who are older and especially patients who have CHF have shown increased mortality. So if we do have a patient who comes in in rapid AFib and is now in new CHF, these patients should be taken off their dronadarone. Now, a lot of emergency doctors forget about all these medications we've been talking about for cardioversion and choose electrical cardioversion in the vast majority of cases. Dr. Au is now going to talk about when you would not want to electrically cardiovert a patient. Dr. Al, let's say you're considering electrically cardioverting a patient with AFib in the ED who you're sure has been in AFib for less than 48 hours. What are some of the factors that would make you reluctant to electrically cardiovert? Right, so even if the onset is known to be less than 48 hours, I'd be reluctant to electrically cardiovert anybody who, even despite that short time of onset, would still be at risk for a throw in a clot. And that would include patients with valvular heart disease, uh, like severe mitral valve disease or cardiomyopathy, prosthetic heart valve, or a prior history of a thromboembolic event like a prior TIA or a prior stroke. Even you know if that patient is known to be less than 48 hours, they can still throw a clot if you electrically cardiovert them. If the patient has a history of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, who's on warfarin, and their latest episode is less than 48 hours, I'd want to make sure that they were adequately anticoagulated at least three weeks prior to my electrical cardioversion attempt. And there's probably a host of other things, just because the electrical cardioversion will require procedural sedation, some contraindications, I mean, it's probably for another one of your podcasts uh, at a later date, but, you know, things like if they just, you know, ate uh, extra value meal at McDonald's or, you know, some other sort of uh, contraindications to the procedural sedation aspect of the electrical cardioversion procedure. We had mentioned the autoaggressive AFib protocol. 
there's several protocols like this where you'd start with giving procainamide, and then if that doesn't work, then you'd electrically cardiovert the patient. Uh, another protocol uses ibutilide. What's the reasoning behind giving an antiarrhythmic drug first and then electrically cardioverting? We know that electrical cardioversion alone has better conversion rates than any drug alone. So why bother giving the drug first and then cardioverting? Why not just cardiovert alone? I think really the main consideration is patient preference. Sometimes when you have a discussion about electrical cardioversion with the patient, they're reluctant to use it. The comfort of the treating physician in terms of if they are more comfortable using electrical cardioversion or chemical cardioversion. And then the other consideration would be if there's availability of resources to do a conscious sedation because you require conscious sedation to do electrical cardioversion. So for some of those reasons, in certain emergency departments, it might be more convenient to put a drip and, and then have the patient on a monitor and use an antiarrhythmic. As you mentioned earlier, electrical cardioversion works really well, so the success rates are somewhere in the you know eighty to ninety percent range. And you know, using antiarrhythmics first doesn't really increase your success rates of electrical cardioversion. We know that from the well, the lack of evidence that suggests that that does not happen. So uh, the autoaggressive protocol specifically, I think it's a bit of a comfort zone, and that's why some of those emergency doctors start with procainamide, and then if it doesn't work, they use electrical cardioversion. But there's no evidence to suggest that it will actually increase your success rates or that it will decrease the number of recurrence that you will have post-electrical cardioversion. But I just think it's nicer for the patient to not get shocked. And of course, there's risks with procedural sedation as well. So, I mean, if you can just wait for the hour, hour and a half to run the procaine, A, the procaine might work, and B, they might just cardiovert, you know, on their own, you might save them that procedure. I'm hesitant about procainamide because I, again, find that the conversion rates are somewhere like, you know, 50 to 60%. They're very similar to placebo conversion rates. And, and so in terms of its effectiveness, I'm not 100% convinced. The other thing that I always consider is a lot of these patients might be on other medications, right? Some of them are, are, are on antiarrhythmics, and then we're adding another yes, agent to them. True. And sure, it's short-term, and we're monitoring them, but I think electrical cardioversion works really well. And again, I would not push it on, on a patient, but if, if that's their preference, it's a perfectly good option as a first choice. Earlier in this episode, we talked about anticoagulation for patients with AFib. And specifically, we were talking about those patients who are cardioverted back to normal sinus rhythm. They should all receive anticoagulation, except for those patients who are young with a CHAD score of zero have presumed normal structural hearts. We're now going to talk about anticoagulation again, but talk specifically about whether patients need IV heparin in the emergency department. We're going to talk about the limitations of the CHADS-2 score, and we're going to talk about dabigatran as an alternative to Coumadin. The risk of stroke in patients with non-valvular AFib is about 5% per year on average, but only about 1% or 2% in patients younger than 60, and as high as 25% in patients over 80. With anticoagulation, the risk of stroke can be reduced to 1% per year, about a 70% reduction with a number needed to treat of about 25, and that's pretty impressive. All the guidelines recommend anticoagulation to prevent stroke for all patients with AFib, except those with lone AFib or with contraindications to anticoagulants. We also know from the literature that the medical community as a whole is terrible at identifying those patients 
who should be anticoagulated and prescribing them anticoagulants. Only about 15% of patients who should be anticoagulated for their AFib are in fact anticoagulated. Cardioversion carries a small but significant risk ranging from about 1% up to 5% of thromboembolism, which usually means a stroke. Where your patient lies on this risk range depends on how long they've been in AFib for and on their risk factors, which are nicely outlined for us in the CHADS-2 score. A prior history of stroke or TIA and severe valvular disease, especially mitral stenosis, are the factors associated with the highest risk for stroke. And also remember that the pattern of AFib doesn't change the risk of stroke. In other words, whether the patient has paroxysmal AFib or persistent AFib or permanent AFib, they should all be considered equally for anticoagulation. Now, what about the patient in front of you in the ED with AFib? Which patients should we be giving heparin to in the ED with AFib? The Canadian guidelines recommend using IV heparin or low molecular weight heparin in unstable patients who require cardioversion and if their AFib has been greater than 48 hours or if it's of unknown origin. Or alternatively, if their AFib is less than 48 hours but they're at particularly high risk of AFib, which I think Dr. Al mentioned some of those risk factors earlier, so if they have valvular heart disease, previous history of stroke or TIA. Okay, so those are for the unstable patients. Those are for the unstable patients that you would start IV heparin or low molecular weight heparin. Otherwise, there's no need for heparin bridging. And for patients who are stable, typically there's no need for using heparin because if you have a patient who has AFib less than 48 hours, you can typically do cardioversion without any heparin bridging. And in those that have very high risk, of stroke, uh, you would not uh, want to do cardioversion in the ED, even if their AFib is less than 48 hours. Now, with regards to starting anticoagulation, as you mentioned, anticoagulation should be started in patients with a CHADS 2 of 1 and above. In terms of aspirin, the use of aspirin is, has become a little bit more controversial. The CCS guidelines suggesting, uh, suggest using aspirin in those with a CHADS score of 0. But there's a move towards not using aspirin in CHADS 2 of score 0. And if we review the evidence behind aspirin, there was a meta-analysis that showed that um, comparing aspirin versus placebo, there was a 22% relative risk reduction with aspirin. However, much of the benefit was driven from only one trial, which was uh, SPAF-1. It was the only positive trial out of seven trials. So there's recent evidence that has come out showing that aspirin actually does not work. There was a Japanese study that showed no benefit with aspirin in low-risk patients, and there was a non-significant increase in bleeding. And there's a new evidence that has come out from a new registry study that has shown that aspirin, again, does not confer any benefit in patients with CHAT score of zero. So the European guidelines have adopted this new evidence into their guidelines and actually state that they prefer no aspirin over giving aspirin in this subset of patients, i.e. the guys with CHADS of zero. The Canadian guidelines continue recommending aspirin in CHADS of zero, but they state that, and I'm going to quote, no antithrombotics may be appropriate in select young patients with no stroke risk factors. Dr. Al, what about the patient who's already on Coumadin, like the one in our case here? Can you safely cardiovert them without having to do a transesophageal echo first? 
even if they've been in AFib for more than 48 hours? Yeah, so I think if you've made the decision to electrically cardiovert this patient in the emergency department, even if the AFib has been more than 48 hours, it's important to make sure that they've been anticoagulated with a decent INR between two and three uh, for at least three consecutive weeks you know, prior to their visit to their own emergency department, uh, or if they're on dimigotram, that they've been on that medication for uh, at least three weeks. We've been talking about the CHADS-2 score. What are some of the limitations of the CHADS-2 score? So first off, CHADS-2 is a risk stratification for patients uh, that have non-valvular atrial fibrillation, so you should not be using it in patients who have valvular atrial fibrillation because they are automatically at high risk of stroke. And the CHADS-2 is really a good tool. It's simple and easy to remember. It's been validated, so I don't want to minimize it in any shape or form. But the one limitation that it has is that it does not include some of the lower stroke risk factors, and those are vascular disease, so for example, MI or peripheral vascular disease, or the fact that the risk of stroke uh, starts after the age of 65. So for every decade after age of 65, you have a relative risk of 1.5 for stroke. So the CHADS-2 score, the age cutoff is 75. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, But you do actually have increased risk starting at age 65. Exactly, Mm -hmm. yeah. And then there's also females. Um, anybody who's a female sex has a higher risk of uh, stroke, uh, relative risk of uh, 1.6. So in order to bridge those limitations of CHADS-2, uh, a group has come up with CHADS-VASC. And CHADS-VASC has built on, on CHADS-2, and it's very similar. And the only differences are that it will give two points if your age is greater than 75 instead of the one point with CHADS-2. And it will give you one point if you have vascular disease, so a previous MI or peripheral, peripheral vascular disease. And then you will get one point if your age is between 65 and 74, and you'll get one point if you're female. The European guidelines suggest that you can start off by using CHADS-2, and if you already have a CHADS-2, for example, you don't have to do a CHADS-VASC. But if your CHADS-2 reveals a score of zero, then you want to tease out their stroke risk by doing a CHADS-VASC. The Canadian guidelines do mention it, and they acknowledge what their Europeans are doing. However, for whatever reason, they don't state why. They are not... um, pro chads vasc at this point in time. I think they want to make sure that people at least use a scoring system and they prefer the use of chads too on its own. So the bottom line with this is that the only patients with AFib who don't require any anticoagulation with aspirin or Coumadin or Dabigatran are those patients with a chads vasc score of zero. Those are males less than 65 without any other risk factors. So while we know that the number needed to treat to prevent stroke in AFib with Coumadin is about 25 and the number needed to harm with an intracranial bleed is about 400 overall, there are some patients who are at much higher risk for bleeding. How do you recommend we assess bleeding risk in patients who are considering anticoagulation for? There's two bleeding risk stratification models that I'm, that I'm aware of. One is hemorrhages and the other is has bled. Hemorrhages, judging by the number of letters, is a bit of a labor-intensive tool, and I won't go into it. Has bled is a simpler scoring system. It has been validated, and there's a maximum of, uh, maximum of nine points that you can get. And you get one point assigned to H for hypertension, A for abnormal renal or liver function, so you get one point for each, S for stroke, 
uh, one for B for bleeding, one for labile INR, and then uh, another point for elderly greater than 65. And finally, you get one point each for drugs that promote bleeding or uh, excess alcohol use. And the, again, as I mentioned, the score has been validated. If you have a score of greater or equal to three, it indicates a higher risk of bleeding. And it puts you at about 3.7% uh, risk of major bleeding. Okay. Um, Dr. Al, what's the role of transesophageal echo in the management of AFib in the ED? Now, when would you pick up the phone to get your cardiologist or echo tech to come down and do a TEE in the ED? Well, I think practically speaking, there's not really a role for transesophageal echo in emergency physicians' management of, of atrial fibrillation. I think that if you're not sure how long the atrial fibrillation's been going on, I think the practical point is you know, probably best not to electrically cardiovert uh, that patient. If you do you know, happen to have that option and you do manage to get a TEE in the emergency department, it's important to remember that both the Canadian and the American guidelines indicate that anticoagulation uh, would be mandatory for at least four weeks uh, post-cardioversion in that case because there are cases where the TEE shows no clot and the patient does uh, indeed go on to have a stroke. So anticoagulate if you're going to use a TEE-guided uh, electrical cardioversion in your ED. In, in episode 16 on stroke, we talked about the newer anticoagulant dibigatran for prevention of stroke. Just to refresh our listeners' memory, dibigatran is an oral direct thrombin inhibitor that reaches peak concentration in two hours and requires no monitoring, which sounds great, except that there's no way to ensure compliance. Uh, it's contraindicated in renal failure, we need to remember, and there's no proven reversal agent in cases of catastrophic GI bleeds or intracranial hemorrhage. The only real chance of reversal with dibigatran is with hemodialysis. It has been shown in RCTs to be at least as good as warfarin in preventing stroke in patients with AFib with a lower rate of intracranial hemorrhage but a slightly higher rate of GI bleeding. In what situations would you consider giving dibigatran rather than Coumadin for patients with AFib for prevention of stroke? The Canadian guidelines do favor using dibigatran in preference to warfarin if an oral anticoagulation is indicated. And the reason that they favor DABI is because dibigatran 150 milligram was superior to warfarin in stroke risk reduction. And the 110 milligram dose was equivalent to warfarin, however, was significantly uh, with significantly fewer bleeding events. One of the most important things is that dibigatran is very expensive. It's not covered under our drug plans here in Canada. And then there is the, the, the issue of coronary artery disease. There was a signal in the RELI trial that there was potentially higher risk of MIs in patients that were on dibigatran. Now, they reanalyzed the data and they didn't so much find it, but that signal is there. And I think once that we start using it in real, uh, the real-life scenario, we'll be able to have a little bit more answers about that. And then ultimately, there's that whole issue of reversing it and not being able to ensure compliance. So it's not like that magic drug per se. It's certainly another drug in, in our armamentarium. The Canadian guidelines are very pro-DABI. I think, it, uh, like everything else, it comes to that patient in front of you. My take on dibigatran is that it's most useful in patients who have been on Coumadin, but their INRs are impossible to control. And that otherwise, even though it might be a little bit better or at least as good as warfarin in, in decreasing the risk of stroke, there are all these other considerations and we just don't have enough 
field testing with it yet. Mm-hmm. Dr. Atsuma, the 70-year-old patient with paroxysmal AFib who's on Coumadin in our case was electrically cardioverted and sent home to continue his Coumadin and amiodarone and to follow up with his cardiologist. In terms of disposition in general for patients with AFib, what are your admission criteria? Who, who do you admit to hospital from the ED and which patients are safe to go home? So in the U.S., they admit 64% of their AFib patients, patients who have a primary ED diagnosis of AFib. In Canada, we published a small abstract that showed it was 42%. And in another paper that we're trying to get published right now, we've shown that it actually, the discharge rate is steadily increasing. So we're sending home more and more patients. It increased by 10% between 2002 and 2010. Uh, so we're sending home more, but if you have symptomatic patients with heart failure or ischemia, you're going to admit them. Uh, if you have secondary causes like hyperthyroidism, you're going to uh, admit them as well. Um, or highly symptomatic patients who you can't get rate control on, the patient you've given all that metoprolol to or all the Dilton you've maxed out and you want to get some help there. Uh, the other group that we have found in patients with a secondary diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, so this would be the patient who at the bottom of the chart you write either CHF plus AFib or AFib plus CHF or pneumonia plus AFib. So they have AFib in addition to something else that seems to have made it worse. And those would be the two big ones, pneumonia and CHF. And we found that they have a much, much higher death rate. So in someone that you're thinking, well, I'll just put them on azithro and send them home, you might want to think twice if they also have atrial fibrillation, regardless of whether it's a brand new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or they've had it off and on. If you decide to discharge a patient from the ED with AFib, what medications do you consider prescribing? For the patient that you've cardioverted, first of all, and second for the patient who you've decided to rate control. So for the patient I've cardioverted, I'm probably just going to use the CHADS VASC score to decide uh, what they need in terms of stroke prevention, and obviously they need good follow-up. And for the patient who I've rate controlled, I generally just choose whatever I use in the emergency rooms. So if I used a beta blocker like metoprolol, I'll send them home on 50 BID of metoprolol uh, for follow-up with the family doctor to make sure it's the appropriate uh, amount to keep their heart rate uh, in check and their blood pressure in an appropriate level. As far as adding on others like digoxin in someone who has a history of CHF, or there's been talk about using ACE inhibitors to decrease the rate of recurrent AFib in someone you've cardioverted, I don't feel like that's my purview in emergency medicine. I feel like if I put them on one, then, you know, someone else is going to follow them and give them another script for it. So I generally start with one and then let the family doctor or the cardiologist uh, take it from there. And of course, for the patients that I'm giving rate control medication to, I would anticoagulate according to the Chad's VASC score. And which patients with AFib that you're sending home would you try and line up an outpatient echo for and or cardiology follow-up? So there isn't really a lot of evidence for this. And if you look at what the guidelines suggest needs to be done for every patient with atrial fibrillation, so you need ECG documentation or holter of the AFib. Uh, They recommend a 2D echo for everyone to look at dimensions of the left atrium and the left ventricle and the wall thickness and also excludes occult valvular disease and pericardial disease, hokum, that sort of thing. So a 2D echo for everyone. Possibly a holter if you're worried about the rate control and the rate's going too high when the patient's uh, going about their daily life. 
And they also recommend bloods with the TSH. I would probably only do TSH in a person with new atrial fibrillation. So I generally send people to a cardiologist if I know that I want ablation. And the new focused update is much more pro-ablation than previously. They say for anyone who's failed an antiarrhythmic, this might be a good option. So if you're thinking about ablation, then obviously that needs to go to a cardiologist for an EP study. Anyone who has other heart disease, I figure, is a good person to see a cardiologist anyway. If they have coronary artery disease or they have CHF, we know that CHF and atrial fibrillation together have a much worse prognosis than either alone, so I think that's a good reason. So we have ablation, other cardiac disease, and anyone who I think who's an antiarrhythmic candidate, because I don't think most of us as emergency physicians are starting people on amiodarone, dronadarone, flecainine, a pill in the pocket, or whatever else. So if you, if this person, you know, really doesn't want to be an AFib and want you want them to go back to sinus, I think that would be a, a good candidate to go to a cardiologist. But does every single person need to go? I, I don't think they do. I mean, I would say that if it's a newly diagnosed, newly detected AFib, having that first cardiology visit for the echo is very reasonable. Besides the bigotrim, there are some factor 10A inhibitors that are being compared to Coumadin for stroke prevention in patients with atrial fibrillation. One is rivaroxaban and the other one is apixaban. Again, we'll probably need some more field testing before we start using these drugs in our clinical practice. Let's move on to our second case. The second case is that of a 61-year-old previously healthy woman who comes into your emergency department with a chief complaint of chest pain and palpitations for the past hour. Her vital signs are a heart rate of 185, a blood pressure of 82 on 42, a respiratory rate of 30, and an O2 sat of 93% on room air, and a normal temperature. Her past medical history includes coronary artery disease, and a, quote, fast heart rate. On further questioning, the palpitations and chest pain started while she was doing the dishes. She describes her pain as a constant 5 out of 10 pressure with no radiation and that the pain is getting worse. She also reports nausea, diaphoresis, as well as lightheadedness. She's on aspirin, the calcium channel blocker Cartizem XL, and the ACE inhibitor Ramipril. On exam, She's an obese female who appears uncomfortable and diaphoretic, but awake and alert. She's breathing rapidly, but without difficulty. Her chest is clear, JVP isn't visible, and there's no pedal edema. The patient's placed on oxygen by mask, two peripheral IVs are started, and a 500cc bolus is given. The nurse shows you the ECG, which shows a narrow complex atrial tachycardia of 100 beats per minute. First, Dr. Ao. How do you define unstable or stable when it comes to the decision to shock a patient out of a narrow complex tachycardia? You're looking for any hemodynamic instability, such as this patient, hypotension, symptoms of an acute coronary syndrome, classic ischemic type symptoms, and then on examination, signs of pulmonary edema or congestive heart failure. Okay, so the patient who has AFib who's just having a bit of vague chest pain, obviously they're not the unstable ones. Okay, and for patients who are in shock and you see AFib on the monitor, what are some of the things you look for to help you decide if the shock is from the AFib or if the shock is from something else and the AFib is just secondary or coincidental? 
So I think the take-home point here is that if you have a patient in shock and there's atrial fibrillation on the monitor, even if it's rapid, the cause of the shock is very unlikely to be atrial fibrillation itself. And there's almost always something else going on, be it sepsis or hypovolemic or hemorrhagic shock, you know, an upper GI bleed or abrupted triple A. The atrial fibrillation is likely just an innocent bystander. The patient had had atrial fibrillation, you know, chronically, you may be lucky enough to get that history, uh, but then something else is going on that's making the patient very unstable at that moment in time. And our job is to kind of look for that. Okay. I mean, sometimes when you're presented with a patient in shock who happens to be in AFib, sometimes it's very difficult to tell what else is going on, even though you know that the AFib might be what you call the innocent bystander. Do you sometimes take the approach of shocking them out of AFib? And if, if their hemodynamic instability then improves, then you know that it was because of the AFib as opposed to some secondary cause. Yeah, I mean, their hemodynamics may improve with cardioversion. First of all, cardioversion, if they've been in AFib for a long time, most of the time it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to keep them in sinus rhythm. But just remember that cardioversion is just a form of rate control. It's fast and it's, it's effective, but really cardioversion is just a form of rate control. And they're hemodynamically unstable from another cause bringing down that heart rate a little bit and and increasing that preload may improve their cardiac output. It doesn't necessarily prove that their hemodynamic instability is from the atrial fibrillation. As I said before, it's really rare for rapid AFib to cause profound symptoms and signs of shock. The rate of successful electrical cardioversion varies from about 85% to 100%, as we were mentioning before. What are some of the factors that decrease the likelihood of success of immediate cardioversion? If the patient has been in uh, AFib for a prolonged duration, they typically tend to be more resistant to cardioversion. And uh, a lot of times, if they have a secondary cause that is leading to that uh, rapid AFib, for example, the septic patient, cardioversion may fail in those patients as well. And then you have those guys uh, with uh, enlarged left atrium. These guys tend to be older, and they tend to be either in permanent AFib or resistant to cardioversion. In terms of the energy level that you're going to use when you cardiovert someone, I've seen a variety of energy levels used for cardioverting AFib. Some people use 100, some people use 150, some people use 200. What do the guidelines say? What does the evidence say about what energy level we should be using for electrical cardioversion of AFib? So the Canadian guidelines give you a range. They say anything between 150 to 200 joules by phasic is a good place to start. And the rationale is that it decreases the number of shocks that you have to use and it increases the likelihood of initial success rates. We talked about the secondary causes of AFib, one of which was ischemia. And we talked a little bit about transient ST changes and how we should interpret those. We also know that some patients, when they go into rapid AFib, will end up with ischemia. Which patients with AFib do you order troponins on in the ED? I'll start off by saying that ischemia has been described as a cause of atrial fibrillation. However, there's this compounding issue that many of these patients share similar comorbidities, and so they might have underlying coronary artery disease. So delineating if the ischemia actually led to the atrial fibrillation can be difficult. And then, as you mentioned, there's the flip side of the coin, where there are some patients with atrial fibrillation, which can have a tachycardic-induced transient rise in their troponins. And really, the significance of this rise is not fully understood. 
does this increase in troponin lead to worse outcomes in this patient population? Should the patient be treated for acute coronary syndrome? These are answers that we are not 100% on. We don't really have a, a lot of good evidence, specifically in patients with AFib. So what I can tell you is that in a retrospective chart review that we did of about 450 patients, about 86% of them had, had at least one uh, set of troponins that were ordered. And then uh, about 14% had positive results. And they had a median of troponin rise to 0.6. So it wasn't a very high troponin. However, 5% of those patients were treated for acute coronary syndrome by the consulting services. Most of these patients that ended up getting treated for acute coronary syndrome had hypotension or ECG changes or congestive heart failure. It wasn't that they just had atrial fibrillation with a little bit of rise in their troponin. So I typically, what I do is I do order troponins, again, in patients that will have, it's very similar to your ECG changes, the discussion that we had earlier. If they have a high pretest probability for myocardial ischemia, so ECG changes, especially if they persist post-conversion or rate control, Especially a lot of times if I see it in the RCA, in the right coronary artery, so in the inferior leads, because a lot of times it's ischemia in that region that will lead to acute atrial fibrillation secondary to ischemia. And then if they have clinical features that are strongly suggestive for MI, so if they give me a very good story of like chest heaviness, radiation, worse with like exertion, uh, if there's hypotension or if there's CHF, I will typically do a troponin as well. Now, what I find is a lot of times by the time I get to see a patient, the nurses have already done a troponin level. But unless they have any of these other reasons that I've stated, I don't keep them for serial troponins. Dr. Axma, up until now, we've talked almost exclusively about AFib. Let's talk a little bit about a flutter. Can you just outline for us the main differences between AFib and a flutter in terms of how they're managed in the ED? And we're actually managed very similarly. If you're looking at an ECG, it's often helpful if you look in V1 or in the inferior leads, which are 2, 3, and AVF, to look for those sawtooth waves that will tell you that it is a flutter. And you can often try turning the ECG upside down, which can help bring out the flutter waves so that you can see them. And why do you really need to know? Well, there, there are some differences. There's a study that came out in 2011 by Frank Schurmeyer, and he looked at the only group of A-flutter patients that we have in the literature, and he found two interesting things. Number one is that pharmacological cardioversion is far less effective in A-flutter, so I wouldn't recommend you trying procainamide or whatever else you go to in patients with A-flutter. His study showed that pretty clearly, and some of the studies by Ian Steele had already suggested that, although he didn't have very many A-flutter patients, whereas Dr. Schurmeyer certainly had many more. So that would be one issue. And the other thing that we hear about in guidelines is that a flutter takes much less energy to cardiovert. So you can start at like 50 in a monophasic machine. And in fact, this study showed quite the opposite, that they needed quite high levels of electricity in order to cardiovert them. So start at your usual higher levels. Don't go lower because it's a flutter. That mm -hmm. seems to be a myth. Two pearls I would have for atrial flutter is that if you see a sinus tachycardia, quote unquote, and you know according to the ECG machine of one fifty, you know always think about atrial flutter, opposed to sinus tach, and particularly if you have an upright P wave in lead V one, always 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 think about a flutter. It's kind of a flutter till proven otherwise if the heart rate is is one fifty. The other thing is that it's uh, often resistant to rate control as well. So don't be surprised if you're pushing dilt, pushing dilt, pushing dilt, and the rate you know, is very very hard to, to control. So here's a quick review of atrial flutter. 
First, look for the sawtooth pattern in V1 and the inferior leads, and if you're still not sure, you can flip the ECG upside down, and that sometimes brings out that sawtooth pattern. And if you see what looks like a sinus tachycardia at 150 beats per minute, think atrial flutter, and look for those ECG clues. In terms of how to manage a flutter compared to AFib in the emergency department, chemical cardioversion is much less effective for a flutter than for AFib, and a flutter is also much more resistant to rate control medications. Despite what the guidelines say, recent evidence suggests that we should be using the same energy level for cardioversion for a flutter than we do for a fib. That is 150 to 200 joules biphasic. Let's move on to case three. Case three is that of a 50-year-old man with a history of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome who presents to your ED at four in the afternoon with lightheadedness and palpitations for the past three hours. He denies chest pain, shortness of breath, or syncope. He is otherwise healthy, except for an excessive alcohol consumption of about five drinks per day. The evening prior, he had, quote, a bit more than usual to drink and says that he feels a bit anxious. He takes no medications. On exam, he appears anxious and tremulous, but is alert and oriented. His heart rate is 150 and irregular. His blood pressure is 150 over 100, and the rest of his vitals are normal. His cardiovascular and respiratory exams are normal, except for a rapid, irregular pulse. An ECG shows atrial fibrillation with a wide QRS complex. What are the main diagnostic considerations when a wide QRS complex accompanies AFib, and how do you differentiate them on ECG? So I think the things to think about when you have atrial fibrillation with a wide complex would be AFib with some kind of aberrant conduction, like a bundle branch block, or potentially atrial fibrillation with a WPW. So if you have a bundle branch block, like a left bundle branch block or a right bundle branch block, pretty much the morphology of those QRSs are pretty much going to follow the typical morphology of a left bundle or a right bundle. And WPW and atrial fibrillation, or so-called pre-excited atrial fibrillation, is a very, very special situation. WPW, or Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, is when you have abnormal connection between the atria and the ventricles, a so-called bypass tract. And when you have atrial fibrillation and your atria are sort of fibrillating at 400, 600 times a minute, you're going to get some impulses coming down the AV node and some impulses coming down the bypass tract. So you're going to have a very, very, very weird ECG. You're going to look at the ECG and you're going to say, I've never seen anything like this before. It's usually fast, like way faster than a typical atrial fibrillation would be because the bypass tract doesn't have any sort of rate control properties the way the AV node will have. So what you'll see is you'll see QRS complexes that are very, very close together, even up to a rate of 300, and they're going to look very, very bizarre. The QRS complex will look bizarre, not like a typical right bundle or a left bundle branch block morphology. Of course, what might help you there is a previous history of WPW. Let's say you've identified this patient with WPW who's also in rapid AFib. Why is it important for us to know that they have this rhythm? 
So this is really important for emergency physicians to sort of recognize atrial fibrillation with WPW when there are impulses coming down both the AV node and the bypass tract is an opportunity for a clean kill in emergency medicine. And what I mean by that is usually for uh, a rapid atrial fibrillation, you're going to give an AV nodal blocker, right? You're going to use deltaizam or a beta blocker to block down the AV node. But in theory, if you do that in this condition by blocking down the AV node, then you can shunt impulses preferentially down the bypass tract. And we said before that that bypass tract doesn't have a, a, any sort of rate control properties. That can just bombard the ventricle with impulses at 400, 500 beats per minute, and that can precipitate ventricular fibrillation, which is generally considered bad. Just to clarify, mm-hmm. any AV nodal blocker drug in this condition, atrial fibrillation with WPW, with that characteristic ECG, which you're going to post in the show notes, any AV nodal blocker agent would be contraindicated in that situation. We're talking adenosine, a calcium channel blocker, a beta blocker, digoxin, and even amiodarone. You know, amiodarone has AV nodal blocking properties. That's why we do use it as a rate control agent. Even though the AHA guidelines say that it's probably okay in this condition, I would definitely, definitely shy away from amiodarone because, again, you may precipitate ventricular fibrillation. Ten years ago when we were using amiodarone like it was water, yeah. Yeah, everyone was so gung-ho about it and they were touting that you could use it in any patient with any heart disease. Yeah, and any rhythm, yeah, exactly. Problems, any rhythm. So this is, this is one of those situations where you definitely don't want to use amiodarone mm-hmm. in those patients with both Parkinson-White and AFib. So we know what medications not to use for patients with WPW and AFib. Dr. Al is now going to talk about what medications we should use, in other words, the treatment for WPW with AFib. So I think in, in general, this is a potentially malignant rhythm. And this is one of the ways that people with WPW can just drop dead. I think the longer that they're in it, the more dangerous it is. Probably the safest approach would just be to electrically cardiovert the patient. But if the patient was very, very stable and you had them well monitored, I think the, the one drug that's kind of been touted to use in this situation is procainamide. Uh, Procainamide can block both the AV node and the bypass tract fibers. So if you were going to choose a medication, that would be the, the one medication that I would choose to use. This month's quote of the month is from Mahatma Gandhi. Learn as if you were going to live forever. Live as if you were going to die tomorrow. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to have the return of Dr. Anil Chopra. And we're also going to have with us Dr. John Foote talking about respiratory emergencies. I hope to see you all at the Whistler Conference, which is coming up in a few weeks. So until next time, take it easy.